Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meets. We're very pleased to have with us today Professor Rosamond McKetrick. Professor McKetrick is Professor of Medieval History at the University of Cambridge, and she is the author of a number, numerous books on medieval history. And today we will be looking at her award-winning book, Charlemagne, the Formation of a European Identity. And here we have it right over here. And I'm sure it can be purchased at Amazon or directly from you. Um, usually our viewers go to Amazon when they want to purchase something. So Amazon, Charlemagne, the Formation of a European Identity. Um, I guess we'll start off a little bit just about your background and how you became interested in this topic in Charlemagne. Well, there's a long history of my interest in medieval history. My headmistress of my girls' school rang up my mother when I was about 14 to complain I knew too much medieval history. Um, I wasn't supposed to be doing it because all the study was later and this was just an interest I'd developed partly as a result, I think, of reading historical novels and wondering what was true behind what was going on. And I eventually got very interested in the Carolingian period as an undergraduate in my final two years, where it was one of the special subjects offered. Up till then, I'd been particularly interested in 11th and 12th century intellectual history, and had done a lot of work on John of Salisbury in particular, who was a very interesting man, worked for Thomas Beckett and quarrelled with the king. But the fascination of the early Middle Ages for me was that there was so much that was still unknown. I felt as if it were possible to explore, to trample over ground that wasn't actually terribly well trodden, and where the landmarks were rather few, and I simply liked uncertainty and puzzle and the investigative elements of not knowing what was going on. The other aspect of it was that when I was actually in my first year as an undergraduate, I bumped into lit almost literally huge books that were in the university library on early medieval manuscripts. This is an amazing series of books called Codices Latini Antiquiores, which actually lists every Latin manuscript surviving from before 800. And I, I got totally fascinated by letter forms and paleography and how you could tell from the form of a script where something might have been written or at least where the scribe might have been trained, that you could date the things, that you could actually trace connections right across the Mediterranean into Northern Europe simply by looking at books and script. So the combination of this interest, the interest then in Carolingian manuscripts, meant that gradually my interest got more and more focused into the 8th and ninth centuries. I was teaching all the way through my career and all the work on Charlemagne eventually coalesced into the book that I wrote then. But as you know, I wrote quite a lot of books before that. My thesis was on the Frankish church and Carolingian reforms, but Charlemagne then was an element in that. 
and in the work that I did on history and memory and also on the Carolingians and the written word, Charlemagne was a major figure always with the propagation of interest, the interest in the Christian church, the interest in learning and education, the skill at governing and the like. So it made sense finally when I was asked by the Wissenschaftliche Buchgesellschaft to write this book that I agreed, even though I have a resistance against writing general books and wasn't quite sure how I would do it. I could then go on but and you did, explain. But you did it. But you did it. I did do it. It was and, a terrifying and it's a great, it's a great book. It's a great book. But it was a terrifying prospect. If you start to write a book about something that everybody has written books about, every famous scholar from essentially the 16th century onwards has focused on Charlemagne. What I had to cope with was four, five hundred years of historical scholarship and interpretation, as well as the sources. So what I did was simply to go back and read all the sources myself and decide what I would do, how would I, how would I approach this. And then when I went back to the secondary material, it was fascinating because so much of it, I thought, the sources don't say this. This is actually not what they're saying. So I began to enjoy myself by putting together a portrait or at least a contextualized interpretative analytical history of Charlemagne from the sources upwards to try and explain exactly what the evidence was and what it wasn't. And I don't think Charlemagne became at all diminished in that exercise, but what I felt I was trying to do was at least try and highlight not only the certainties, but also a lot of the ambiguities of the evidence where according to particular predilections, some of the ambiguities have been made into certainties, that some hypotheses over the years have become solid facts. And it was that kind of methodological exercise as well as the subject in itself, which combined in what I tried to do. Very interesting. Let's just set, set the scene a little bit for those that might not have the background. What does the map of Europe look like at the time of Charlemagne? What, what, what are we looking at in Europe? Well, if you start with Charlemagne's father, Pippin, what you have is clearly, or even a little bit before that, in the aftermath of the Roman Empire, you have the emergence of different groups of peoples within the areas that were once Roman, but also beginning to incorporate areas that were not. Each of those areas in Spain or in Italy, in England, Wales, Ireland, in North Africa, were ruled by different groups, often actually in collaboration with the populations who had existed under the Romans. Now, the general phrase that's used for these is the barbarians, because that's what the word that's often used, they were foreign, but they settled within the Roman Empire and formed the successor states, the so-called successor states to the Roman Empire. And in Gaul, the area we would now think of as France, that was where the Franks were primarily settled. And by the time you get to Pippin, Charlemagne's father, the Franks were settled throughout the area we think of as France. Now, Pippin actually expanded his own rule and when he became king, 
he conquered Aquitaine, and Aquitaine was the southern part of Gaul. So when Charlemagne inherited with his brother in 768, essentially the kingdom he inherited with his brother comprised what we would think of as France. But from then on, he started to expand that kingdom. Some of it was by chance and opportunity. Others was deliberate setting up with campaigns. So that by 814, what Charlemagne has taken into what we would now call the Carolingian Empire, because he was crowned emperor in 800, comprised the north of Spain, the whole of area we would call France, the whole of northern and central Italy, down to Rome, more or less, the whole of the western part of what we would call Germany into Bavaria, the whole of what we would call the Netherlands and Luxembourg. So essentially, by 814, Charlemagne ruled Western Europe. That entire area now had Carolingian rule, Carolingian administration, and as Charlemagne conquered more of the area we now call Germany into Saxony, a lot of that area, which had hitherto been pagan, was brought into the fold of the Christian church as well, with new bishoprics founded, missionaries getting active. There were also relations with the Slavs in further east, in the north, and into further east, into the area we would call Moravia. And there were also relations with people that are called the Avars, who appear to have been replaced by the Magyars in the area we would now call Hungary. So it's essentially right across to the Danube bend, this um, area, which is in one way or another connected with the Carolingian world or actually ruled by Carolingians. Even in Dalmatia and Croatia, that area too has links with the Carolingians. So, so when some historians claim that Charlemagne um, was the greatest European leader uh, before Napoleon, is, is that simply because of the extent of territory that they were involved with, that they controlled, or was was it beyond that? Was it perhaps it, it, what you're identifying as a new European identity? Well, it's an interesting question because it was Napoleon who kept on drawing parallels between himself and Charlemagne. He did it partly in terms of conquest, the, the, the mighty warrior and so forth. So there's a territorial element to it. There's a very interesting procession in Aachen in 1811, where a huge statue of Charlemagne was paraded through the streets with a placard under it saying that only Napoleon was greater than he was. Charlemagne's sarcophagus was brought by Napoleon from Aachen and installed in the Louvre. And when Napoleon was dealing with the papacy, he invoked Charlemagne as one of the inspirers of the kind of policy he was operating. But it may well be that people have also thought of things like the Code Napoleon and the effort to make weights and measures and coinage uniform, the attention to law. And again, with Charlemagne, you have coinage, which is uniform right across the empire and very efficiently produced. You have an enormous attention to lawmaking and you do have regulation of weights and measures. So the whole series of parallels, it's, it's a possible connection that one could make. 
I myself don't find that kind of parallel particularly helpful. It's the kind of thing you produce in chat shows and the like. But on the other hand, I think because Napoleon himself thought that this was an interesting parallel, that's one reason why one can look at it a little bit more closely. Very interesting. I, I had uh, in one of the books that, 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 I, that I worked on uh, explored Alexander the Great. And, you know, in a similar vein, his father really set the scene for what Alexander accomplished, like as you just compared now uh, with his father. And one of the things that, um, that Alexander did was he made sure that he visited the, the tomb of Cyrus the Great. So you see that in history. Um, great leaders try to compare themselves to previous ones, and, and that's how they do it. Um, what is what is the main thesis um, of the book? Um, the, the unique perspective that you try to bring out, and and what 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 unique perspective, if any, did you find on the personality of Charlemagne from your research? Well, there's a two major different. Elements. Um, I'll deal with the, the second one first, if I may, because the, the personality is really difficult to pin down. I think many people have set out to try and write biographies, and some people have thought really very carefully about what actually one can do in the form of a biography of Charlemagne, especially when we have a very early one written by somebody who was a courtier at Charlemagne's court, Einhard, who knew him, was greatly indebted to him. When he invokes the personality of Charlemagne, he retreats to descriptions from Suetonius and classical authors. So paints a portrait of the king, which may indeed be accurate, but it looks as if it's compiled from different aspects of Roman emperors. There are also statements in the poetry at the court about the man, and sometimes it's the awe he inspired. Sometimes it invokes his interest, personal interest in theological and intellectual questions. There are some invocations of his fairness and justice and his attention to government. But you still really don't get a clear sense, except little comments such as Einhard offers that he was so fond of his daughters he wouldn't let them marry because he wanted them around him and th this may be this may be true I mean it's it's the kind of I think trying to create an image of a great man that fits with what they think is appropriate and we may be dealing with that kind of thing from Einhard onwards so I personally didn't even try to convey the sense of the personality of the man. What I wanted to try and do was to see whether I could see what he was trying to do, the extent to which he actually achieved what he tried to do, and what the determining factors in those decisions and aims might have been. And also to try and explore the degree to which the ruler Charlemagne and those with whom he was dealing actually were very conscious of themselves as inheriting a very complicated past with a determination to make sure that it was established and that it continued as a foundation for the future. And I think that's probably my main governing idea was to these, this use of the past to 
create a strong present and an even stronger future was something I find really extraordinarily interesting and was one of the things I was trying to convey when I talked about the formation of a European identity because there were so many aspects that were brought from the past, the biblical inheritance, the Christian inheritance, the Roman and classical past, and their own ways of doing things, which were all melded together to create this very, very strong political system and a very strong cultural and intellectual edifice as well, with this very very interesting emphasis on religion being one of the ways that you did this.